Good morning, my Oikos family. How is everybody this morning? I love these cold mornings. I just want to stay in bed where it's warm and not get up. Uh, it's like a hug. It's awesome. I love it. And I'm from the Midwest, so uh, these mornings are like home to me. Uh, so we've been talking about transformation these last few weeks, and uh, it's very fitting that we have a discussion, a series of discussions about transformation, this being the penultimate Sunday, that is the second from last, uh, when our church body makes a transformation to our new campus at 522 Lindale. As it would so happen during the same time period, my wife Kendra and I have experienced and are experiencing transformation ourselves individually and as a couple. It's not a secret to many of you. Uh, it may be news to some, but it's, it's not a secret. And it's been quite a struggle. It's very often felt like we are being refined by fire. Metals, when they are melted, smelted, to become purer are run through a furnace that is blazingly hot. And that's the, the metaphor that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Mark that down and look it up later. 1 Peter 1, verse 7. Being refined by fire. God is purifying us. And we have to remind ourselves almost daily, Kinder and I both have to remind ourselves almost daily that like Rend Collective says, there's pain in the plan, but there's victory in the end. And along the way, along this path of transformation that we have been walking, trudging, I've realized that transformation is not an event, it's a journey. Transformation is not a, an event, it's a journey. And sometimes, my friends, it is a long one. Jesus illustrates this point in one of his most famous parables, one of his well, most well-known stories. Hi, Levi. Isn't that interesting? We're teeing up the, 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 stare, the, the story of the prodigal son, and here I am, the father, and my son walks up on stage right as we're about to introduce the scripture. So, yeah, amen to that. Uh, so we're going to look at Luke chapter 15. So fire up your smartphones, open your, the paper Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 1 and then skip to verse 11. So starting at verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. And now we go to verse 11. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the same time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have enough food to spare, 
and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Give him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and, and kill the calf we have been fattening. He, we must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard the music and the dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and would not go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, Dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now he is found. It is a terribly beautiful story. And yet, even as a young boy, when I read this parable, I was always uneasy. This parable, this story of Jesus never set well with me. In my mind, I knew God's love and mercy and grace. But in my heart, when I read this parable, whether I said it out loud or not, I said to myself, how unfair is that? We can live as we want and all we gotta do is run back and say I'm sorry? It never set well with me. I am the elder son. And I suspect some of you are too. What I want to journey with you all this morning about is the loss and the return of the elder son. But rather than just hear me speak, we're actually going to use a bit of a visual aid as well. Uh, if we can cue up the painting. Rembrandt was a Dutch painter, lived in, about the, in the 1600s. And he was considered one of the Dutch masters. He's not a Renaissance painter. He was after the Renaissance and he wasn't quite uh, impressionism, although he, he uh, uh, influenced a lot of the impressionists. And he, he painted a marvelous and very large painting of this parable. And it's shown up here. Just a very quick tour of the painting here. So the entire left side of the painting is dedicated to two very obvious characters, right? We have the father with the red cloak, and we have the younger son whose head is shaved like a slave or a prisoner. He's wearing 
in what in those days would essentially be his undergarments. He's in his underwear. He walked this long road home. His shoes are tattered. One of them does not even have a strap on it and has fallen off his foot. The father looking lovingly at his son with his arms open wide, pressed in. You can even kind of see the shadowing around the hands where he's pressing in on his son. But that's only half the painting. The other half, the the entire other half of this painting is dedicated to the elder son. I focus on this elder son because the lies he believes are so insidious. They run incredibly deep. What makes them, it's okay, son. (laughs) What makes them so terrible is that the lies he believes are covered in a veil of righteousness. Remember the parable. Father, I have, I have worked for you. I've never disobeyed. Right? Obedience, duty, right living. These are all good things. And on the surface, they appear right, but down beneath are the true motivations. We instead are hiding with our righteousness, foolish pride and resentment. Rembrandt captures this in his painting remarkably well. The the elder son bears the outward marks of the father. He has the red cloak. He has the beard. And even his face, light in this painting, by the way, is a complete mystery. Because the the shadow of the son, the uh, the younger son and the father is is going backwards. But yet the elder son's face is shining with the same light that the father's face is shining with. There is something connecting the two, the father and the elder son. And yet, even though he bears all these outward marks of the father, inside he's being eaten away by his pride and his resentment. Rembrandt shows this by the distance between the two. This is an enormous painting. And the main characters, the father and the younger son, take up only half. The other half is for the elder son. There's this chasm between the two. And he's in fact, you, you can kind of hardly see it, but he's, he's actually on a platform up and away from the father and the younger son. You can see in his face the pride and resentment that the elder son has. Pride and resentment, though, are very loaded, very abstract terms. And so I want to get practical and concrete. There are probably more, but I've I've been told, I didn't come up with this on my own, there are four hallmarks of pride and resentment. Like I said, we're going to get very concrete, but as a friend told me recently, uh, or referred to these rather as the four horsemen of the relational apocalypse, They are criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. And we're going to go through each of those just briefly. Criticism is different than a rebuke. When you have have been invited into a discipleship relationship with someone and you've asked them to hold you accountable and they say something you may not like, that's not criticism, that's a rebuke. A rebuke always comes from a place of love. It is both an invitation to draw nearer to the Father 
nearer to Jesus, to return home, if you will, and a challenge to leave behind that which separates you from the Father. Criticism is different. Rebuke reminds you of your identity as a loved one and his identity as a good, good father. Criticism puts down, it shames, and it strikes at a person's identity. Someone told me recently that uh, there are always never two things you should never say in a marriage. Always and never. You always do that. You never do this for me, right? Those, those are criticisms. Criticisms strike at a person's identity as if to say, you are now and always will be a failure. That's criticism. You always, you never, that's how you know. That's one of the ways you know that you're criticizing. Contempt, actually, let's back up for a second. Criticism here in the painting, um, we see in the eyes of the elder son, they're, they're piercing. And you, you, you know you've got his hands clasped, he's stepped back, he's staring at, at what appears to be the son. If you look at the gaze, it's not at the father, he's staring at the son. In his mind, in his heart, he's criticizing his younger brother. He does the same thing in the parable. In, chap- in verse 30, the elder son points out to the father all the younger son's sins. Right, He's, He says, yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. The father doesn't need to be reminded of the younger son's sins. He knows very, very well. When you ask your parents, and in, in many cultures, particularly in, in Africa and in the Middle East, when you ask your parents for, their, for your part of the inheritance, what you're essentially doing is asking for them to be dead. So the father does not need to be reminded of the younger son's sins, but the elder son does it anyway to criticize. Passive-aggressively, I might add, because this criticism is not directed at his younger brother, it's directed at the father to get the father to change his behavior. The second horseman of the relational apocalypse is contempt. Contempt is also a very loaded word, and I think it's one that we use a lot without really truly understanding what it means. This is what contempt is. Contempt means that it's a feeling that someone or something is beneath your consideration deserving of scorn. Christians, we, are really good at covering up our contempt with Christian-sounding platitudes. One I've used actually, and repented for, is my heart breaks for fill in the blank. I might say to a person, you know, I, I see what this other person is doing and it's, it's terrible and you know, my heart breaks for that person. My heart breaks for him, it really, it really does. No, it, it, it didn't. My heart didn't break for that person. Instead, what I'm saying is I'm pointing out, it's contempt, right? They are deserving of scorn. It's a preface we use to kind of put a little thin veil over our contempt. It's a haughty, conceited imposter of love. It is not love. It is contempt. Contempt is not hard to find in Rembrandt's painting. Right? I referred to a couple of things earlier. He's so far away 
from, the, from both his father and his younger brother. His hands are as close to his body as they possibly could be, whereas the father's are outstretched. The hand that is actually in front of the hand, the, 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 the backward hand, or I'm sorry, the one, behind, the one in front, is actually shaded darker. Right? There, the light that is on his face is not in his hands. The light is not on his chest. It's not on his feet. The, the light has escaped the rest of his body. He's standing straight up. The father is bent over. His eyes are cold, almost emotionless. That is contempt. The third horseman of the relational apocalypse is stonewalling. Stonewalling can be either actively aggressive or passively aggressive. Active, in its active form, it's evasiveness. Stonewalling is like, you know, kind of a big word. It's really evasiveness. Uh, when, when asked to discuss really the deep down dirty details, we, we back up and we don't want to talk about it. We evade it. We avoid people that we don't want to confront. We don't want to confront us. Avoidance is the passive aggressive form of stonewalling. You might be talking to somebody and, and about this third person. And you say, I just can't stand it when she does this. I can't stand it when he does that. That's stonewalling. What you're doing is you're setting up an argument to not interact with, not show love to that person. The elder son in the painting is stonewalling as well. I mentioned his hands, how close they were to his body, right? He's withholding love from the younger son. In the parable, we see the same thing, right? Rembrandt captures what is in the parable. The younger son refuses to come inside after being told what the party is all about. The, the elder son stays out in the fields fuming. He's avoiding. He's stonewalling both the father and his, elder, his younger brother. The fourth horseman of the relational apocalypse is defensiveness. Defensiveness. This happens a lot in marriages or in any relationship, really. We know defensiveness, in particular when the object, the person who is the one we are scorning, the one we are trying to separate ourselves from, the one we are criticizing, we know defensiveness when that person tries to speak truth into your life. If your reaction is, how dare you, who are you to say that is defensiveness? Again, take note of the elder son's posture, his stare, the distance. It's almost as if he's put up a wall between him, his father, and his younger brother. In verses 29 and 30 here in, in uh, Luke chapter 15, the elder brother says, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat 
for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. That's defensiveness, right? He's saying, how dare, who are you to give these gifts to my younger brother after all he has done for you in light of all the things I've done for you? It's defensiveness. If I could have a, a chance to rename the parable, I would call, it would probably be more aptly named the parable of the lost sons, plural. Because we don't have to get very deep inside the elder brother to see just how lost he really is. His mind and his body are here present, but his heart is in a distant land. I was very recently confronted with my own resentment and four horsemen. And con <laughs> confronted is not, uh, not the precise word because that's too nice. I was squarely beamed by a 100 mile an hour fastball thrown by a veteran pitcher called Holy Ghost. And it hurt. <laughs> and it actually happened in this place in our worship gathering. I was listening to a sermon by Frank Hart. I was sitting in back, kind of keeping one eye and ear on Levi and Lexi and one eye and ear on what Frank Hart was saying. And he mentioned as one of the people who had helped him in his journey to plant new church, uh, a particular family. And he talked about how righteous they were, how amazing they were, how supportive they were. And I was floored because the person he was talking about, I knew. The person he was talking about was at the helm of a company that didn't survive. It was actually a company that, moved, that asked Kendra and me to move, to relocate, to go to a distant land, to leave Kansas City and move to Houston. That company imploded and we were left left behind. And when I heard his name mentioned as someone who loved Jesus and helped plant a church, my, I got this feeling in my gut like I'd been punched. And I was encouraged both by, by Sylvia Schmidt and by Aaron to really press in on why. And I, I, actually, I, I sat with Sylvia right after the service and, and I, I kind of knew what that meant. I knew that I'd have to, I had not spoken to this gentleman, by the way, in years, four or five years. I had, I, it had been since I'd spoken to him. And I sat down next to Sylvia and I said, I'm going to have to call him, aren't I? She said, no, you have to meet with him. <laughs> oh, no. And Sylvia being the amazing child of God that she is, didn't let it be just that. She checked in on me three times to make sure I'd done it. So thank you. I did eventually meet with this gentleman. We had lunch and I knew, I didn't quite know what I supposed to do. I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to say, but as I was driving to our lunch location, all of a sudden it hit me. 
not only was I supposed to forgive him, I was to ask for his forgiveness. Because once I realized that things were going south in this company, I withdrew. I pulled back. I continued to get paid, but I didn't do a whole heck of a lot. I was resentful. I was scornful. I was passive-aggressive. Defensiveness, stonewalling, criticism, contempt, all of them. And I realized what was really going on. I realized that the reason I had such a guttural response to hearing his name mentioned as someone who was a supporter of a church was because my mind, my soul, my heart could not deal with the fact that he and I are the same. I grew up in the church. I was confirmed top of my confirmation class, memorized lots of things. Eagle Scout, high academics, not so great at sports. All kinds of things, right? I, I was just like the gal in the video from earlier this morning. I lived the Christian life on the outside. And I couldn't bear the thought that I was really deep down. I, academically, I know I'm a sinner, right? Everybody knows that. But do you really know it? My mind could not reconcile the two. And so God used that moment to tear me open and show me I'm not as righteous as I think I am. And as I drove up to our lunch location and realized that not only did I have to ask for his, not only did I have to forgive him, but seek his forgiveness. I knew what I had to do, and so I walked into the restaurant, and we didn't need to say a word. I didn't run exactly, but we saw each other, we made eye contact, and we embraced like brothers. All the contempt and derision and scorn had melted away. We proceeded to have lunch. And in this, he's talking about all his business interests and all the different things that he's doing. He's a serial entrepreneur. At every point in the conversation, he offered what he had to us. He has a, a home in wine country and wants Kinder and I to use it. The businesses that he owns, he wants us to, to use the services of his businesses for free. Everything he had, he was offering to me. We were brothers. We were family. The parable of the prodigal son, sons, appears to have no resolution for the elder son. Just like Rembrandt's painting doesn't have resolution of the elder son and his father or his younger brother. But only if we look at this parable as a parable about three people, is there no resolution? Because the promises for the elder son are there. In verse 31, first of all, the, the father pursues the elder son. He runs out to the field. Despite the elder son's contempt and staying out in the fields, he runs out to, to 
bring the entire family together. Please come in. The father begs him to come in. And then he gives the elder son his promise. He says, my son. But the Greek here, the Greek word technon is actually my child. He says, oh dear child, you are my dearly loved son. You have been with me and all that I have is yours. He doesn't say it in the parable, but I know he says in his heart, you are my beloved with whom my favor rests. The promises of this parable are tremendous. But as I said, this is not a parable of three people. This is a parable about one person. Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, left His home with the Father. He experienced the lostness that was the younger son. He left his father's home and came down to dwell among the pigs. He was scorned, abused, mistreated, and ultimately killed. He died and returned home to join with the Father and to love on us all. But the parable is not just about one man, it's about all mankind. Because transformation is not an event, it is a journey, and it is a journey that Jesus wants to experience with us. He left his home and died so that we could live. So when he returns to the Father, he brings us all together, and with him brings us home to the Father. We move, each of us, through all three of the people in this parable. The elder son, we, we confess our sins, we believe that Jesus is our Savior, we feel the warm embrace of the Father, and yet at the same time, we still are sinful people. We still have contempt and defensiveness. And despite all of that, he still gives his promise. He calls each one of us his own dearly loved children. All that he has, he gives to us. And then challenges us to be the Father. To wrap our arms around our family. To remind them that they are his dearly beloved children on whom his favor rests. Jose, you are his beloved on whom his favor rests. Howard, you are his beloved on whom his favor rests. Kelly, you are his beloved on whom his favor rests. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are indeed a good, good Father.
you wrap your arms around us and like a warm blanket on a cold day, you make your love known to us. And we thank you. Forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for our obedience. Forgive us for our righteousness. Heavenly Father, we kneel before you not even wanting to be called your sons and daughters, but you do anyway. You won't even let us finish our speech that we've prepared because you just love us so much. Lord, as we make this journey from younger to elder son, I pray that you strengthen us to represent you, to wear your red cloak, to shine as your face shines on our faith family. May we be your instruments as we love and support one another. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.